Hey, hey, folks, and welcome to the Daily Ratings Podcast. So, as 2023 comes to a close, Vince and I wanted to bring five films together to, one, highlight the highest-rated films of the year, but also group these together as a refresher, because we will no doubt be talking about these on the Tom Dailies in just a couple weeks. So, the top films we're looking at again will be Inside by Vasilis Katsupis, Blue Giant by Yuzuru Tachikawa, The Holdovers by Alexander Payne, Oppenheimer from Christopher Nolan, and finally, Killers of the Flower Moon by Martin Scorsese. Now, this could easily be seven films today, because Inside's rating is tied with two other films, one being Suzume, a great anime from director Makoto Shinkai, and the box office giant, Barbie. So these two films will absolutely be discussed on the Tom Dailies, but for today, we figured we'd look at Inside, because it's just such an unknown film, and solely sits on the shoulders of the beloved Willem Dafoe. So Vince and I will be back next week with seven, yes, seven newly released films, wrapping up all the movies for 2023. But for right now, sit back and enjoy this year's top films. This is the film that it was like the one trailer Vin saw last year. He was actually excited to see this movie. It is with our boy, I'll say, Willem Dafoe yes, for sure. Absolutely. We're a big fan of Willem Dafoe. This movie is now playing. It's now released or just released. This is Inside, di- directed by someone we I don't think we definitely don't oh, know. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Vasilis Katsupis. Wow. Excellent job. I, I don't even have the balls to try to pronounce that I name. I don't. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Again, we're, it's it's rated our film. It's an hour and 45. I don't think a lot of people know that this film exists. I yeah. don't think they know much about it. Do a brief setup a little bit and tell sure. us what was your excitement from and how did it actually end up faring. I got to say, this film was right up my alley, what I wanted. I, I was originally hyped for it for that trailer. Uh, you know, I, I really hate trailers. So when I saw this, this didn't want to make me blow my brains out. So that's a real big positive. <laughs> it's a big you know? positive, yeah. yeah. So, uh, but <laughs> seriously, I, I love the whole premise and the feel of that trailer. And I knew I had to include it on this week's watch list. Our story here is an art heist gone wrong. Willem Dafoe plays Nemo, a burglar dropping into a high-end luxury penthouse to steal a handful of paintings. Um, within our opening 10 minutes of the film, however, the alarm springs, sealing, sealing the high-rise into a gigantic panic room, essentially, uh, or, for, uh, or de- for Defoe's circumstances, his new prison. Now, the entire runtime of the film is trapped in this gorgeous palace of art and luxury, but the structure of the story is what surprised me here. I would describe this as a psychedelic survival film, and I'll break that down. But that in a penthouse, yes. Uh, wow. I, uh, but survival film is is the core there. I put this right next to Castaway and Martian. Okay, swear to God, I'm yeah. in. Yeah, how Nemo operates as a character trapped within this apartment quickly becomes an unexpected survival challenge. Early on, he's he has a kind of a, a semblance of hope that he may escape with actually his his picks, his mm. his his paintings that he's stealing. But quickly that goes out the door and, and very quickly that shifts to him just trying to survive because he doesn't know how long he's gonna be trapped into this penthouse. That challenge is fought mentally as well, a sort of twisted cabin fever. Um as sharp and cunning as Nemo is as a thief. 
his mental state degrades unusually fast as he's surrounded by all this surreal art and it's beginning to kind of seep into oh, his psyche. Oh, okay. Absolutely. Uh, it's it's huh. it's exactly what you want out of Willem Dafoe. <laughs> you want to see him just go crazy. <laughs> right, right. Know? It's exactly what I wanted out of the film. Not that I expected a survival film as its story structure. None of the slightest. Sounds really risky, too. Yeah, yeah. This takes place in New York? Like uh, it's a New York penthouse? Uh, uh, nondescript. Uh, presumably Manhattan. Though. Okay, yeah. okay. It yeah. seems, yeah, it seems risky. Yeah. A survival uh, story in, a, in, in an a apartment. <laughs> yeah. Right, because it, that alone, it's like, what? oh, great. He's in a penthouse. He's stuck. That's not really stakes. But it's fascinating how the film clocks up stakes. And then again, if that's even not enough for you, you have this kind of mental degradation from uh, from Defoe's right. character, okay. from Nemo. Uh, and this is exactly what I want out of characters. Characters written and acting like their character role. We spoke about this importance with our Jurassic Park 1 review. Not once do they ever stop acting and operating within the plot like scientists. Very similarly here. In this mm. movie, Defoe never stops acting and problem solving like a master thief. He's sharp as a tack. Until he goes a little mad. <laughs> and that's shown in, in, in the trailer of, you know, Defoe's acting and talking to a pigeon and whatnot. And uh, honestly, that that's, that's definitely 50% of why this movie hits so much for me. Because I just love... Even Defoe just being a solo act, basically. He is. Uh, he's, he's very fascinating. I, I was kind of just thinking back on Defoe and everything like that. He is becoming one of the top, top art house actors. Yeah. You go back through his filmography, and he's so impressive that he doesn't chase big films. Now, yeah. he was, I understand he's Green Goblin and everything sure. like that. Sure. But the dude, I just appreciate him for loving the art. Yeah. He's not a guy who will go take the paycheck. Absolutely. Except for maybe if it's Green Goblin or something. But. <laughs> You know he's a great I, green goblin. Right. <laughs> but you know what I mean? I mean, it's it's film after film after film of low budget but great storytelling and you and look how he hits. You're enjoying this. You have Florida yep. Project. Oh, sure. And so many Lighthouse. others. Lighthouse. Yeah, right. Lighthouse Absolutely. exactly right. Absolutely. Uh, he's becoming like the art house guy. I, I think that's great and I'm I'm happy to give him the crown too. So. Yeah. I I think again in this kind of problem solving he has in the penthouse, it stays focused on escaping the entire time. The script never once leaves the film's own logic, and it makes watching Defoe problem-solve for an hour 45 uh, very gripping, um, in addition to him going crazy. So every avenue of him escaping this panic room is explored. Um, just when you think you have a critique for the story of just saying, uh, I'd actually do this first, or I do that. Uh, honestly, it hit me that Defoe is trying something new to get out and survive. And talk about a in stark contrast with sixty five, an actual survival movie <laughs> with actual dine, you know, with real stakes. Yeah, <laughs> Defoe's eating caviar for thirty days, right. you know. <laughs> so uh, it, it's it's crazy how in the execution this was a better survival movie than sixty five. So wow. uh, and, and a great one too. And I get why calling to survival may sound like an odd genre to putting it put it in but it really unfolds as that and like i said i would honestly put this right next to a castaway a martian in its structure because it's unique that it's in a penthouse and it's unique that defoe is our leading man and a soul leading man but it he's not there's no character motivation other than getting, getting out, out of this hell that he's huh. trapped in this prison that he's trapped in 
like I've hinted about already, it is honestly great watching Defoe be weird <laughs> the whole time. Yeah. You know, he's a, he's a kind of a cat burglar, high end art thief, but he's eccentric as well. And it's led in with some narration to kind of introduce us to the character and why he may not have all his marbles, basically. Okay. All right. A lot is riding on his shoulders to entertain as a solo act as well. And he does not disappoint. This is a great performance and it's a great performance because he's not really talking all of the time he'll eventually do some monologues and some narration but so much of the film is just silent and he's him you just see him scanning the room and trying to find out how the hell does he get out of this hmm. man i was just right there for it i was yeah. i was so about this movie the cinematography is gorgeous so many wonderful shots have a beauty to what he's trapped in, but also lends to serious storytelling. Uh, it communicates what you need to know and does not hold your hand. Um, if something is shown to Defoe or shown to the audience, it's not narrated, it's not spelled out, it's there to keep in your mind. And you know, though the film may be very quiet, Though the film may be a little bit boring for some, uh, it, it's something to engage with. Uh, it's not going to hold your hand through this. Uh, some couple examples of this is that very early on, he tries throwing a stone. Uh, it's like this orange, like stone centerpiece mm-hmm. at a at a at a glass window. He's he's at the top floor of a high rise. Instead of us seeing it bounce back off, the next very scene is just the stone laying on the floor and Defoe walking up to it, defeated. Uh, you know, there's no extra communication there. Right, it's like right. You fill it in. Uh, another great thing is that the temperature is fluctuating very oddly uh, in the in the entire film. We see this through it being on the temperature gauge, but by the sweat on Defoe's back, when the cool finally turns on, we don't get a shot of little right, little, little tassels. Yeah, yeah, little tassels little. over it. We just see <laughs> Defoe in ecstasy over it finally being some cool air. Like that's what I mean. It's on his shoulders and yeah. he's running the whole show. Like it he's doing a good he's job. So good. <laughs> yeah. Freaking love Defoe. Yeah, yeah. Let me let me give some real talk for the second time this episode. Uh like I said a little bit, um some might find this boring. Some might not weigh logic of a script as heavily as I do and not get kind of pissed off when it doesn't fill up to logic. Honestly, some might not be into a movie with, you know, Willem Dafoe going mad for for an hour and 45, you know. (laughs) That may not be some people's bag, but I would argue two things for the appreciation of this film. Engagement is driven through Defoe's attempts to constantly try to escape, and the subtle horror setting in of how long he's actually been trapped in this place. And secondly, uh, the dripping gorgeous shots that not only comprise the visual appeal of the film and the art and the luxury, but tell a story of their own and, again, subtly tune in some horror themes. We're going to go ahead and give Inside an 81. Wow. First new film. Cracking the 80s. That, yeah. Um, you know. We're in March, <laughs> but that's okay. You're right, you're right. It's been a minute. But yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah this was exactly what I wanted uh, out of it. Fantastic. Yeah. I, I can't wait to see it. Yeah. So we have, again, newly released. This is Blue Giant. And this is an anime release. Mm. It was only in theaters, I think, Vin, you said, for two days. Two so days. Do some homework for us. Sure. And just like, how did this come about? Why this anime? Uh, you're bringing it up to us and how'd you like it all? Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, well, well, Tom, let me start by saying 
let me let me ask you, how yeah. many times have I mentioned I was looking for a good anime release? Yeah, okay. Since, good anime gateway drug. Since Kimmy. Since you were let down from oh, Kimmy. Uh, Kim, uh, was it Kimmy? It was, I'll tell you what, here's what it was. It was every That's time right. I mentioned anime. You're right. <laughs> it wasn't Kimmy, you're right. It, what this was, it was one of the first episodes that we kind of did, uh, early Bell. days. Bell, Yes. Yes. And it came to American theaters. Yep. It was and, a big release. Yeah, because the whole idea was there was this, there was this drummings of, could good Japanese anime make it into full throttle, full release, mm, yes. major release, you know, 3,000 yep. plus theaters yep, in America. Yep. That tanked and tanked. they're terrible. And it was just a bad movie right. as well. So. Uh, I don't know if, as far as new animes, we might have had one or two decent ones, okay mm. ones. Of course, we had a new... Um, the Suzume. Oh, that's right. We had Suzume. That was this year. And uh, Broly, Super Super Broly. Oh, Dragon Ball Super. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is simply fun. That was that was a great theater experience. That was really good. So that's when the wrong movie played in the beginning, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was, uh, that was that was awesome. That was so good. Okay, but the answer is, I think even before the podcast, we oh, have been waiting yeah. for a great, true, good anime. <laughs> exactly. So bring us up to speed on this one. Did this have the hype for it? Or you knew, like, uh, it, it was kind a question mark walking? I, I was aware of it. I didn't. I wasn't aware of the release and kind of scrambled to get to one of the two uh, the the two releases or the two days of the releases. Um, for this year, we've already had a, a great release with Suzume, but even with the prestige of Makoto Shinkai's style, I still wanted something more out of uh, again a gateway drug, something that is just anime enough. Yeah. That's not going to be off putting. Uh, and can land with audiences, but still is anime enough yeah. that gives us that uh, that that love of of for me kind of a mind. Does, yeah, does it pass the Tom test? I love that's that. A, that's great. <laughs> well, you're adventurous. You you've seen Paprika. You've seen some adventurous stuff. Barely, yeah, Paprika. Yeah. You know, Bacano was right oh, up my alley. Oh wow, callback. <laughs> But I don't even know if anime fans know Bakano anymore. <laughs> but it's 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 true. I am very difficult with anime. Yeah. I tried to get into it at one point. Yeah. And I ended up just kept on falling asleep. Because it just... <laughs> no, it's a big problem <laughs> with you. Let me tell you that. <laughs> there wasn't a lot of movement on screen. Yeah. And I just can't get engaged with these characters unless it's, it's very... It's the talking heads. Specific. The, yeah. Right. Because Trigun should be some of my favorites. Yeah, sure, sure. Anyway... <laughs> The point, well, the point is, you're looking for that thing that could get me, though. Uh, yes, yes. Not an uh, anime watcher, but yeah. someone who can actually really get engaged with something that is true anime. Yeah, like a, a almost the impossible balancing act of, you know, being... Tame enough. Tame enough, but also still representing anime, yeah. you know what I mean? And, and let me tell you, finally, finally, Ooh, okay. that itch has been scratched. Okay, all right. Uh, Blue Giant is a fantastic movie, and... With no strings to any series uh, homework that you would have to watch beforehand is a fabulous film for anyone to jump into. Wow, okay. The only thing that is a knock against it is, honestly, this release window. Uh, it's already done. Uh, October 8th and 9th was uh, the only days that it was in theater, so or at least in, in the States. So when it comes down to it, unfortunately, we are going to have to wait a little bit, but it is worth the wait, folks. Okay. Our director here is a huge favorite of mine, um, Yuzuru Tak. Uh, Tachikawa. See, I see. I messed it Tachikawa. up. Tachikawa. 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 <laughs> uh, an absolute powerhouse director for some time now. I would say most notably his 2013 short film Death Billiards snapped my attention to his career 
And quickly, he grew working with one of the biggest manga authors, uh, One, that's his name, it's just One, uh, on the phenomenal series Mob Psycho 100. Um, these two titles are without a doubt a blanket recommenda- recommendation for me, folks. Uh, and I'm happy to add this film to that list. Okay, all right. Uh, Tachikawa is a fantastic di- director, and I can only hope he does more features like this. Uh, Blue Giant focuses on three characters uh, drawn together in a moment of friendship to do one thing, play jazz music together. Our, our main focus is on Dai, a re- recent uh, graduate that is a saxophone player, and probably in the most Japanese way possible, the second time I've said that this, <laughs> this episode, uh, he wants to become the best jazz player in the world. That focus and drive is infectious as his two other bandmates are inspired to match his effort and relish in knowing that these moments playing together won't last forever. In a lot of ways, this film has the appeal of Whiplash or La La Land Mm -hmm. in that it's a story directly about jazz. All of these stories touch on how jazz is a almost perpetually dying art and that something that that it's something that has to be experienced to be fully understood. You have to experience it firsthand. You have to experience it live. Mm-hmm. I'm happy to say Blue Giant is in that small little nebula of movies that do that topic of jazz justice. I mean, it's, you know, it's a very small it topic. Is. I but... really like the compilation, actually. Right. You should put that on the site. Yeah, yeah. Because some of these films are so good. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Especially Whiplash and La La Land. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, 100%. I, I would call this story a Kaizen story, which in essence is just striving to get better every day. Day by day, trying to get better with yourself, putting yourself towards a focus. Uh, This type of character arc is present in a lot of Japanese anime. Uh, And in lesser hands, could be annoying in its portrayal, but Tanchikawa has already refined this formula in his previous works. And part of why I feel so strongly about this being a great gateway drug is because it shows that kind of anime stereotypical blazing determination Mm -hmm. to conquer the world or, or, or by any means. In characters of that medium, of this medium, uh, that can be good or bad. Sometimes that itself can be kind of an off-putting character depiction or character arc when you're watching lesser animes. Uh, While here, it's still pairing it with a realistic drama, still pairing it to musicians playing jazz, and I feel like that match is uh, palatable for anyone yeah, to watch. Yeah, it seems really grounded in reality, mm-hmm. it, even though it's an animation, essentially. Absolutely. Yeah, very grounded. Absolutely. And even something that, like, you know, we, we talked about in the Shinkai episode, uh, you know, how these are almost like family-friendly safe movies. Yeah. Uh, I feel there's there's a similar line here. I wouldn't call it family-friendly in the sense that, I mean, what kid's going to understand jazz? Or, <laughs> you know what I mean? So it, it, it is more of a mature type of topic, that they're concerned with uh, and where the story goes, certainly as a drama, but just has enough of that anime-ness uh, that uh, still gives you a good taste of it. And that's that's where I'm getting yeah, it. Yeah, little drug. teaspoons, little teaspoons. Exactly. Like, it's not like he blows into the saxophone, a monster comes out, then right. every instrument has a monster. <laughs> yes, he's not summoning then, ghosts right. with, a, with a saxophone <laughs> or anything. I, mean, I would love that. That sounds awesome. I mean, it but... really sounds like a normal movie just told through an animation style. Yeah, this. Now, I, I mean, probably the best way to go about it, especially with how much the story is about driven focus, is it is like anime whiplash. Yeah, I mean, that sounds... That's very cool. Yeah, I, I'm kind of surprised even to hear that a little bit. One thing is, it, it, it's still two hours, so mm. it is a two hour anim- animated movie mm-hmm. that is good for adults. It just it seems 
it seems like a long time mm. to, to have that palatable. For you, that's no problem. Sure. Uh, I think I think what really clips along is that once we're in the music performances, you're basically just watching the, the music unfold, the, yeah. the performance unfold, which I feel like, I mean, if you're really not into jazz in any, any regard, right. those are going to be pulling teeth. I think otherwise than that, those help the pacing really clip along. Okay, quite a bit. all right. Uh, especially when it's sandwiched between these kind of uh, this this melodrama a little bit between the group. Uh, now there is one kind of iffy spot here, and it's in some spotty CGI used in the music performances to get a higher frame rate to the animation. But I'm going to be honest; I don't think it looks terrible. But it may be jarring for someone to jump into. The reason why they did it is there seems to be a semi-rotoscoping of real musicians on Mm. stage. So they needed to kind of match this a little bit rough-looking CGI to it to basically match the real-life musicians that they're animating over. So, Which kind of cool, but... Does it take you out of it? Does it seem like a whole different kind of thing going on visually on screen? Yes. I I feel like in a moment you see it, uh, it takes you out of it. Until you see a full music performance go through, and I'll touch on why okay, that, is, right. that is really the 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 reason to see this film. And folks, I mean, it is it is so made up for. It is like like three times over. It pays off to 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 watch these music performances unfold. This is one a phenomenal. 10 out of 10 soundtrack from a real jazz compo- composer named Hiromi. But central to any jazz piece are the solo. The solo mm-hmm. of someone popping off on stage and going into their own, their own little uh, iteration of the song. The dramatic flourish that is given to the animation is breathtaking. Many scenes will add simulated lens flares to the brass of the in- instruments and become these like solar flare streaks flooding the room it's seriously like brass plasma it was amazing (laughs) it was amazing colors will start to bleed as if the sweat of the performance is morphing the screen itself and it might be hard to believe but the quality of the animation in these moments are on par with even the flashiest of anime action you can imagine oh that's very cool like you want to talk about Dragon Ball Z? This right. is like them going jazz Super Saiyan. That's that's. that's I love that. I love that. That's the best way I can describe it. And it's it. cool because it, yeah, I, this is something I can really enjoy. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, folks, I'm not messing around though. I mean, when I say the jazz is the action sequence, the jazz it, it, is what we want the payoff to be, and not only that, the story is so directly about jazz. Yeah. I'm not messing around. The jazz is the action. <laughs> I love it. You, I think you, that's awesome. It's, it's it's a jazz action film. <laughs> Jackson. But, yeah. yeah. But it's really it it really is it pays off in such a way and it pays off in such a visually profound way. Uh I would put this alongside the animation greats this year like Spider-Verse. When I say that that this iffy CGI that we see every now and again, it really it, it it's it's just made up for in spades. It it just it's it's so on so many levels. Fold after fold after fold, the film surprises you with how most electric moments on stage that we're hearing, that we're seeing, are driven to the stratosphere 
with what is done to okay, stylistically yeah. show how uh, intense this jazz is. And it, I'm telling you, it's, 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 it's a must watch. It's so good. Okay. Well, um, this is big talk. This is big talk. I, I'm not going to call, um, you know, I, I don't want to call it early, but this has some potential to do very well at the Tom Daly's this year, folks. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> um, and a wide range of categories, too. Because uh, like I said, just on a music wow. level, really, I've been listening to the soundtrack very- all week. Okay. I reference a lot of different works in this review, and while there are many through lines in those comparisons, I think the one that should stick out the most is quality. Whiplash, La La Land, Mob Psycho, Death Billiards. You know, these are quality, quality projects that would be worth your time, even if stylistically you may not love them. Uh, the talent around this project is top notch, and the result is an anime release that deserves to be included in the best films of 2023. Wow. We're going to go ahead and give Blue Giant an 82. Wow. Vin, well, a, 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 you were giddy well, about this film. I, I'm excited about love, it for you. Yeah, you <laughs> I drove an hour to see this to the ghost town. <laughs> but no, it, it it really was phenomenal. Wow, um, 82 is a big anime score. Yeah, and, and and I think I'm just so in love with it because it's one of those great anime features that just has no ties to a series. There's no homework you gotta do. That that's so huge. Yeah. So many of these animes that even people say are great. You you're three movies in, mm. or you're based off the show or, or a hundred episodes from it. Or, yeah, right. yeah exactly. exactly and it's just too much to ask from some. I mean if you really like it that's one thing but uh, as far as a recommendation this when you is just want to watch a movie standalone. like I do yeah th- mm-hmm. that excites me and very much like you said if we're talking about a whiplash and you yep. know very much how much I love that I love yep. that movie yep you don't need to be any kind of fan of jazz to enjoy that sure, film. You don't need sure. to be any kind of fan of anime to enjoy this film yeah. or jazz, probably. I think that I think that's really cool. Uniquely, I have to see it now because you're you're quite giddy about these action scenes. Oh, action, yeah. jazz, jazz action! Because it's not just I'm picturing like the magic school bus. It's like, oh, a <laughs> rainbow comes out. You know, all right, all right. <laughs> but <laughs> a rainbow comes out. But if it's uh, that visually awesome and you need anime to tell that tale, kind uh, of, yeah. Awesome. So kind of now we all just have to wait. You gave it an eighty-two. Mm, now we all wait till yeah. hopefully it comes on a streaming. Yeah, service who knows? Or I know it's 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 being um, distributed by G Kids, uh, who they do a lot of stuff. But um, hopefully, bottom line, it, it'll come to a digital release sooner rather than later. Because okay. this was definitely worth your time. Or maybe even to rent it on Amazon or something. Sure, like right, that. right. Some sort of uh, you know non-theater release. Okay, folks. Big surprise. Eighty-two for Blue Giant. Don't sleep on it. And it sounds like we'll be talking about it later in the year anyway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we won't let you forget about it. Let's keep it going now. I'm not sure if a lot of people know about this. It's not. It's you know. It isn't supposed to be a big blockbuster hit. Yeah. No. It's a more limited. <laughs> theaters but this is coming from a very big indie director yeah. and one who's uh, known for his quality of work his quality yeah. of script writing as well yeah uh, this film is called the holdovers it has uh one of our favorite paul giamatti yeah in it. yeah it's uh two hours and 13 minutes so it's a little bit lengthy from him we've definitely covered alexander payne before mm-hmm. but it's alexander payne's the holdovers vin how'd you enjoy it uh well i gotta say uh this definitely gets the crown for this week and uh, i really didn't think it was gonna have anything to it i thought it was gonna be just kind of blandly acceptable this had one of the oddest trailers I've seen in a while, spitting in the face of um, 
I guess uh, what I'll title the dramatic rock song trend that has taken over every single trailer. I mean, they're going to run out of pop and rock songs <laughs> yeah. to, to cinematically, uh, you know, Hans Zimmerfy for the trailers here. Uh, and my interest peaked only because I saw it was directed by Alexander Payne, a name I first encountered on the podcast uh, with you all, with the great uh, Wino movie uh, Sideways. <laughs> I don't know if Wino is a slur or not, but it's what's in the notes. <laughs> here we have a reuniting with Paul Giamatti as well, uh, so it really did seem ripe to cover for the episode, and uh, boy, was I happy uh, I did, because I, I think this was such a good film, such a great film, that it really just gets really? a blanket recommendation from me. Oh, I feel fantastic. like this works for everyone, but not like in a way that is just like, oh, it's, it's inoffensive. It really works uh, for what it's going for, uh, and, and a really great movie, one of the strongest of the year, for okay. sure. Before we get into it, yeah, I'll touch on the trailer a little bit. I, I felt like it was a very safe trailer, although mm. it was a little bit long. Cause that's yeah, just it's how... trying to be like this retro 70s thing, which uh, bleeds I, a little bit. But I film. was okay with it. I felt like it was almost a Paul Thomas Anderson trailer. For sure. He's, uh, def- that... he's giving you something, but don't worry. He's not giving you the whole thing yeah. at all. Yeah. And I like that. I have a, I've, I've done some research on Alexander Payne since oh, really? you've done Sideways. Oh, yeah? And I just I really have respect for the guy. He really cares about his work. Oh, that's great. It seems like he's very good at it, and he has a feel for his material and who should be portraying it as well mm. like when you look at the list of some people he was thinking about for sideways mm-hmm. and then when he, the actors he ended up going with yeah, yeah no one would make bets on those actors <laughs> and yet it was nominated for oscars you know yeah. and the screenplay is very well high regarded yeah yeah and it's kind of got this huge cult following behind it so yeah. i was happy to see him once again with paul giamatti going after it mm. and i knew it was going to be something probably special yeah especially if he's doing this kind of reuniting thing yeah uh, well then absolutely for you specifically Make time to watch this. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, obviously the distribution of it is a little slim. I forget if we commented on it already, but similar to Dream Scenario, uh, which we mentioned uh, as a, another good trailer, closest theater was like 50, 50 miles away. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, hopefully the holdover state, it, it's in about 780 theaters right now. Okay. So hopefully there's one within a half an hour of you. Mm. But I think that's going to start to shrink pretty quick. Yeah. 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 So, but absolutely worth checking out, coming to streaming. Uh, and, uh, and again, uh, a full blanket recommendation, folks. Uh, this is a story set in an old school Christian boys' academy, boarding school, however you want to word it, where uh, the many students are sharp as attack mentally, but could not be farther from worrying about their grades as Christmas break looms over them. The holdovers in this uh, are uh, five unlucky boys, with the newcomer actor Dominic Sessa uh, as the standout, Paul Giamatti playing an uptight hit history professor, and Divine Joy Randolph running the cafeteria. I cannot praise these three main acting performances enough. So much was layered into their characters that was, again, so enjoyable to unpack in an equally realistic and dramatic way. I feel like as far as screenplays goes, and as far as actors capturing those screenplays right, and right. bringing it to life. This is dynamite. Dynamite. Okay. Really great. A lot of how you felt about Sideways then. Yeah. I want to make a distinction too because sure. I didn't do that. The Holdovers is not written by him. Oh, right. By right. Alexander Payne. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And I don't think he is a writer-director normally. Uh, I, I don't have the, his, uh, his work off yeah, the he's top a little, of Yeah, he's a little all over the place. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. Exactly. For instance, he wrote uh, I Now Pronounce You Chuck and Larry. <laughs> I believe. <laughs> Which... You know, 
And folks, we would like to announce the next comedy writing study. <laughs> yeah. So as far as these three main focal points, though, you know, despite each of them having a glare of regret, uh, having to spend the holidays with each other, all of them are flawed in some way, and again, add to such enjoyment to actually unpacking these characters. These characters. Um, Giamatti is a loner, shut in, and you know, stuck impossibly far into his own head. This is kind of flared into how he deals with that loneliness. Loneliness. Maybe he drinks a little bit too much. Dominic Sessa is a sharp-witted uh, young boy, but gets into trouble and seemingly is abandoned by his mother by the the action speaking louder than words uh, on him being one of the holdovers. And Divine is uh, grieving over her son passing away in the war, but won't let anyone even relatively close to ease her pain. Even beyond our main three, all characters in this have just such wonderful depth explored in these days stuck together. Uh, it is the type of film that you walk away from not only feeling good because it's mm. trying to tell somewhat of an optimistic story, but enriched by it because of how much depth there were in literally every character on screen. I don't feel like anyone is a token character and a stereotype. Most importantly, the depth there is worth your time. See, one thing that's good about that and kind of, I think, rare a little bit, mm-hmm. it's because so much when you might walk away from something with that, oh, that was a feel-good movie, mm. uh, you don't expect much from it. Sure, In it's fact, inconsequential. It's, it's not vapid, but... but Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a lip just... Yeah, or like a, you watch like a Disney family, or maybe, maybe the, the big umbrella is a family movie. Uh, feel-good right. family movie, uh, that isn't something that it, is usually quality, you know, associated with it. Right, right. It's not It's not overwhelmingly engaging. Yeah, it's, yeah. You don't have depth. You're not, you know, usually the characters or actors are not as thought out like you would from a great drama or something like that. Sure. But that's great that coming away from this, it's not only a feel-good film, but it's a feel-good because of the depth yeah. of the characters. Like you Absolutely. Just said. That's, that's cool. Absolutely. Uh, and I think on that note, you know, this, this setup uh, as a... You know, heavy Christmas spin it might not sound too different than your average holiday family film, but in execution shines much, much brighter and shocked me how good it was. Uh, much like we covered with 2004 Sideways, uh, the script refuses to hold back any intellect. You know, if only with Giamatti's character, this has a deep academic uh, spin to the film uh, shown in dialogue, but also how highbrow some jokes are. An early note I had as a negative mark was that if uh, there was going to be an eye roll uh, of uh, characters being so in academia and so kind of highbrow, that would mirror the experience of uh, the film, of the, uh, the viewer of the film, uh, that they would be rolling their eyes yeah. at, uh, at some of the script Glazing work. over a little bit. Exactly. Exactly. That would be too like all right, you know who you know who's this for? It's four professors or something like that. <laughs> um, luckily, that is not the case here, as the film is just so witty and smart in unexpected ways, uh, and again, much like Sideways, is smart enough to poke fun at itself in its own intellect. Mm-hmm. Um, that's actually something. Uh, returning back to Sideways in that review is something I wish I stressed a little bit more, because for how as much of a aficionado type of spin to the film there is. It is kind of self-deprecating, oddly enough. Oh, um, big time, yeah. Yeah, it's trying to it's trying to kind of make a joke about how ridiculous all of this is, and uh, very similarly, we have a we have a good good similar concept. Let's see here. audience in on it. Exactly. Yeah, I think this is best showed in uh, how the puzzles of their lives unfold, which adds. 
which, no, I'm sorry, which avoids tacky camp or cliche that could so easily slip this experience into a schmaltzy throwaway Christmas movie, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. just another Christmas movie where until this point, I would not describe this as a Christmas movie. This is something, you know, unique and, 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 and stand out for that reason. It's not defied by, you know, uh, its setting or anything like that. Okay. I'm glad the 70s throwback style was more than just having a fun time in the in the time period. Um, turns out the trailer was was more telling than I thought. Not only does this fuel a wandering but not lost folky soundtrack uh, that would be appropriate for the 70s, uh, it does play into substance in the story as well. And and uh, I don't want to go into too much for spoilers there, but um, uh, it's it's. For me, scratching an itch that I always want style to be paired with substance. You know, this wasn't just being set in the 70s for the sake of it. Okay. Above all, folks, performances are why this is a watch. Uh, Giamatti and, uh, as well, Randolph are both pretty great in this. Especially them together, their banter as, I mean, just two polar opposites uh, walks of life is what makes um, moments in this film actually feel very breezy and, and snappy as far as dialogue back and forth, the volley of them back and forth. But all, and I mean all of the praise, goes to Dominic Sessa as uh, a first-time acting role for this kid. Uh, and really? And downright excellent. I, I, I was stunned. Um, I... I I looked at the IMBD just to make sure again and again he has no other credits to his name. I don't know maybe wow, if he had, it was in uh, you know Broadway or something like that. Uh, wow. Amazing, such a good performance on so many levels, and his delivery of the script again, his ability to take an already real sharp screenplay yeah. and do more with it um, is flawless. How old is the character? Is he portraying? Uh, he's supposed to be portraying like a definitely high school age, but I feel like the character said at one point that they were held back a little bit. Again, they're misfit okay, uh, okay. type of thing. That good. I mean, I'd love hearing that. Yeah. Right he away. Was, he was great. Do you um, think this is, I don't know why, I don't know why PTA is on my mind when it comes yeah, to this film a little bit, but what do you think about Philip Seymour Hoffman's kid? I, it, surprising we haven't seen him in anything else. Right. I don't know. But he was dynamite di- in, yeah. in Licorice Pizza. Yeah. Uh, I think, if anything, one of the best parts with Licorice Pizza. Uh, here, Sessa's on a whole nother level. Uh, really? This is, this, is, this is Oscar nom all the way. On, in oh, already like a, a very competitive year, this we, would be a snub that I would actually be upset about. Is uh, he Now, is he supporting or that's Maine. tough to say. Okay. I, I, I would argue Maine. I feel like there's a, a a very easy way to see this as an ensemble cast, and all three are leads. So um, you oh, know, uh. semantics as far as uh, you know how what, what what category he gets nominated. He needs to get some sort of recognition though, because this performance cannot be slept on. If, it's amazing. If he was nominated for best supporting, mm-hmm. his chances of of winning would would skyrocket probably. Yeah, one because he's not going up against. A Leo or 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 De Niro, you know, and um, uh, wow, Murphy struggling for Murphy. Who, what do uh, Killian Murphy. Yes, yes, yeah. so, exactly. But the biggest thing is if they're shared that much on time. We talked about this mm, on Killers. Yeah, yeah. When you have that much screen time, yeah. and considered uh, supporting. Sure. But, I can't wait to see this. Yeah, I just think the fact that he's able to keep up with all the witty intellect that uh, Payne has to offer no less stands out as the best among these other actors. That's crazy. Uh, I mean, Paul Giamatti is a a heavy hitter. Exactly. So, uh, again, it might be bold to say in such a competition-heavy year uh, that uh, he deserves a win, per se. I think that's very hard to say. But absolutely deserves some sort of nomination or recognition uh, because, again, this is a first 
first time role, and I can't wait to see him in cool. whatever comes next. So, well, I hope he gets a call. So I hope he's not yeah, the uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, Ray like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope he's not Ray Romano. I think Ray Romano's got enough calls. He's, he's, he needs more. <laughs> I don't want to see Ice Age five or six. I thought you were going to too many. <laughs> So that's a good five slot. Yeah, yeah there it is. Always, always thinking of ideas. Uh, I thought you were going to say like uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's kid because <laughs> he's clearly not <laughs> no Ray Romano. But yeah, uh, folks, a seriously good movie, uh, top to bottom. Uh, I could go honestly on and on about little choices in the edit and the cinematography, but on on a long episode already, I think it's actually best to experience how it helps the story unfold. It's not just concept, it's execution. And like I opened up with a blanket recommendation from me for one of the strongest films of the year, we're going to go ahead and give The Holdovers an 82. Wow. 80, whew, okay, 82% for The yeah. Holdovers. Real good. And Christmas movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is awesome. <laughs> yeah. You absolutely. finally like the, all the, all the, we had that five Christmas movies last <laughs> the year. The action movie special, yeah. We were just waiting for this one. 82% for The Holdovers. So for the big explosive film, here big three hours on the dot let's get into it right away this is christopher nolan's oppenheimer vin i'm sure you saw it at imax yeah okay good uh (laughs) sigh of relief (laughs) i was fully planning on on going to see it 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 didn't work out i couldn't go see it very upset about it but (laughs) i think i have two movies to go see this week now yeah i gotta go see barbie this week. you should do the double feature i think i'm a five hours yeah (laughs) Uh, I did not do the double feature. Uh, if that robs me of some credibility, no, I apologize. Don't worry about it. I apologize, but was already going to see Oppenheimer on Saturday. Now this weekend, so oh, I gotta nice. add Barbie. But regardless, excellent Oppenheimer. Let's get into it. How do we tackle it? How'd you like it? Uh, well, let's let's start with just a little bit of the hype train, and and I feel like. Oppenheimer, it's such a a colossal movie, and I mean, it's a lot to grapple with yeah. in so many different ways to grapple with it. I'm just going to kind of be fluid with my thoughts and, and, and kind of go through it, and I want to start with that hype train uh, that pulled up with this. Um, after Nolan's uh, aspirations to bring the theater back with Tenet and, and what largely flopped, it felt like the teaser of Oppenheimer was already being played before movies. Like, it felt like that that autumn after Tenet, like Oppenheimer was already being teased mm, with that counter countdown, you know, whatever. Right, right. The cast was so so extensive. The subject matter had such gravitas to it, and all of it supercharged by the internet long before Barbenheimer was even coined. Uh, I feel like um, Nolan has a very definitive following online of just lovers of his films, and I can't say I hate on that because I love Nolan's films as well. Yeah, I can understand when people. People critique him, and they don't like certain aspects, how loud his films are. This is not escaping that. This is a very loud film. Uh, But uh, it really is. I mean, the internet hype machine has been brewing for Oppenheimer for such a long time. It has been. And I think, like, seriously for the past year at least, Mm -hmm. where it's just been – it has been openly talked about a lot. Yeah. Uh, And as far as this year, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And folks, believe the hype because Oppenheimer is stellar. Uh, I'm a little bit conflicted. Uh, on its role as a story versus a biographical film or a biopic. 
I do have a slight personal bias with this. Oppenheimer has been a historical figure that I've been fascinated with ever since writing a paper on him back in another life in college. Mm. <laughs> what feels like another <laughs> life now. So I'm, I'm very aware of all aspects of this story and where it goes. And, and, and why I bring this up is because I was a little bit concerned that was my love of this film skewed in that type of way because mm. I was recognizing the slew of characters that are thrown in without a lot of explanation, especially government characters in this. I feel that could go either way. Yes, I feel mm -hmm. like you just in the know can mm -hmm. connect to it better. Mm -hmm. I feel like it also, you you walking into the movie, it could hurt it, you knowing so much about the story oh, already. Oh, sure. Yeah, it definitely could have gone both ways. You know? Um, so, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm very curious of what someone that literally doesn't know anything about Oppenheimer thinks of this film, especially in like the last hour or so. Right. But um, Oppenheimer himself is a poetically tragic man whose history is in two directions, before and after the bomb. Nolan actually reflects this in his story presentation and editing here, which we will touch on in a little bit. But for a biopic, which side do you show? The scientific breakthroughs and the war effort leading up to the atomic bomb or the decades of political destabilization that comes from atomic weapons existing? Nolan undoubtedly chooses the correct answer, and you show both. That's where you get the three-hour film. <laughs> For the audience to understand why Oppenheimer is such a tragic and tortured figure through history, we have to see how his invention warped the world around it, and in addition to his brilliance creating it. So this brings up the three-hour runtime. Uh, circling back to feeling conflicted, that last hour of the film becomes so heavy in polit political and legal plot threads that I just wonder if it will not only lose someone not familiar with the history, but also be almost deliberately confusing of how many characters and many actors show up, feel like they have importance, but really are just one piece in Oppenheimer's story. Mm, um, yeah. And it's, I, I don't know. I'm just very curious uh, of, of what the type of experience of that will be. Like that as well, like with Barbie, I noted, it is about Oppenheimer directly. Um, there's a big cast here, but focus and then even my kind of critical analysis of it, it's about Oppenheimer here. And uh, Killian Murphy does an, a wonderful job. I feel that if he doesn't get the Oscar for this, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, the talk around it. Now yeah. the in execution and the actors now coming out talking about I mean what Robert Downey Jr. saying that he's never seen another actor sacrifice as much as he saw mm. Killian Murphy wow. you know he didn't go to dinners with all the actors when they were filming because mm. it was just like the weight on his shoulders to get this character right in filming sure. so sure. he just like avoided the dinners and he just was in his own mindset. Wow. Uh, I heard total dedication to, to trying to get this character yeah, right. Yeah. And I mean, it's nothing more than brownie points, but boy, does he really look like the father of the atomic bomb. I mean, Oppenheimer's a creepy dude, especially <sighs> post-World post, uh, War II. He becomes very gaunt. He yeah, becomes check uh, out some YouTube videos. Yeah, almost, which is, I mean, uh, uh, I gotta be honest, I always found him to be cool for that reason. Yeah. You know, that was my you know surface level uh, uh, fascination with him. <laughs> I mean, uh, talk about a role made for an actor. Uh, Killian has always had this type of aesthetic to him, this uh, this gauntness to him. I, I think Nolan knew he wanted to do this film for like a long time, mm. and always had Killian kind of in the back of his mind. That's great. Yeah, that's great. And talk about a culmination of their partnership over the years uh, as well. Always, uh, yeah. Scary 
Scarecrow. He was in um, uh, Inception, of course. Um, Dunkirk. Yep, absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, let's talk about some of the editing and story structure, though, because I think it's it's really where Nolan shines in this. Um, Nolan is no stranger to illustrating structure in his movies. This is probably his trademark if we did a, a full a full study, but in in my head, 2000's Memento is probably the best example of this, that there mm. is a meta structure to how the story plays out and shown through his editing and, and what scenes were shown. If I had to take a stab at the structure of this film, only seeing it once, um, here's where the, <laughs> the food analogy comes in. I'd, I'd almost call the editing like a spiral or an onion with the atomic bomb being the center point of it. Um, now, strategically, the story jumps around his life, f- first showing us some of the earliest but also the latest moments of his life if you will, the onion, the outer layer of the onion or the outer layer of the spiral. Uh, (laughs) We're good. (laughs) Uh, But as the film progresses, these time jumps and the intensity of the plot increases as we draw closer and closer to the bomb. The closer we get to seeing the Manhattan Project, the more we are seeing events immediately following its completion, the inner oh, layer of the saying. onion and the spiral. Does that make saying. sense? Yeah, it, it's. I'm, I'm throwing it out there. That's, okay. that's my genuine thoughts on it. I have no idea if that's true to Nolan's uh, plan or his actual intention in the structure, but uh, that's how we're shown events. It's earliest and latest, and as we're getting closer and closer, we're seeing the events it's immediately like two before. Ends, immediately it's like after. you stretch out a rubber band. Yeah. And you have the two ends mm-hmm. is what you're seeing. And then as you snap it back and release it, it's just mm-hmm. getting closer and closer to those two ends. Absolutely. And the center point being, of course, the it. the, the, defi- exactly, <laughs> the defining feature of, of Oppenheimer's life. I so. like that. And it's still – I have to say because I was like, how is he really going to mess with time <laughs> yeah. in this one? What is Nolan going to do to really mess up the clock? Even yeah. though there's obviously a ticking clock in the film. <laughs> yeah. it's, that's not good enough for Nolan. No, no way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's how he kind of does it. Okay. Absolutely. I like it. Uh, and I think it's brilliant because though The Last Hour still is a lot of that political and legalese, and it's a lot, I enjoyed it, yeah. but I feel like it is it gives that side energy where – in the wrong mm. hands, in the wrong execution, that would be the uh, the kryptonite, an hour long courtroom scene, which you can uh, hate. Yeah, exactly, and they would, it would just kill the momentum. And I don't care how tragic they would make it; it's just it would just kill the momentum of the film. So true, so, especially for how Nolan likes to build his endings. You know, the rising, you know, Hans Zimmer score. It's, it's yada, such yada. a great. It's so true. Three hours, such a great layering technique. Yeah, absolutely, to keep everybody just still there, still yeah. engaged. So we got tension lasagna for Mission Impossible. We got the. Onion for Nolan. <laughs> I, I will say I don't know if the onion metaphor works. Okay, you you like spiral? It has to be spiral. Almost. Oh, okay. Well, an onion is peeling of layers, mm-hmm. and what you're talking about—that's not what you're talking about. Oh, uh, well, in the sense that uh, the events of earliest and latest that the story is tackling yeah. are tackled first, and then as we're getting closer, we're experiencing events. Closer right before and immediately after okay. to, you know, okay, all right. the Manhattan Project itself. All right, I'm so, there. So maybe spot. <laughs> we'll throw out the food analogy. Sorry. Sorry, Glenn and Carol. <laughs> uh, my interpretation of the structure aside, though, editing is the real highlight here. Um, it completely avoids any pitfalls of being a soulless, uh, empty biopic by the books. You know, this could have just been... 
build up to the to the Manhattan Project, and then you know uh, the the what what is happening after in in um, Oppenheimer's life, and really had me thinking back to the highlights of the Inaritu study. That mm-hmm. you can take a a, a a straightforward story, and it's all in how you present it. Specifically, Babel, I think, would be the right uh, an example of that, or or Twenty One Grams. Um, it's all in the execution of uh, the editing style, and Nolan is clocked in on this. Um, if there's anything easing that three-hour runtime, it's a kind of rhythm that scenes all have. Half of that is because of these editing choices, and the other half is in an ever-present soundtrack that uh, plays nearly over every scene. Okay. <laughs> what is it? Uh, it's, it's the sound. It's the score. Oh, okay. Uh, it's just played constantly. Because the Dunkirk thing. is just the, his ticking. Right. Right, right. Yeah. It's the ticking of, the, of his watch. Yeah. I, Which it, I don't it, normally mind with him. No. I, I think that's why both like, of us are a fan of Nolan. Yeah. If there is something levied as a critique of all of his films, though, is just how loud and how scenes are not left in silence. Right, he right. He always is adding in these bombastic scores. Um, previously with Hans Zimmer. I was going to say, yeah. Yeah. Not, not Zimmer, this one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but exciting. Uh, continuing their partnership from Tenet, Ludwig Goresson uh, does an excellent job in composing the score for this film and might even beat out his work on The Mandalorian, which, uh, if anyone knows me, is, uh, is, is near and dear to my heart. I really like Goresson's work <laughs> on that. Uh, Goresson does borrow some, some motifs from Dunkirk, uh, incorporates that ticking clock into the music. Oh, okay, and there you go. Works in a lot of the score, works in a lot of the scenes. But uh, best of all, he introduces a foreboding radiation crackle in a similar way, increasing as the project looms closer and closer to completion. So don't get me wrong, I think the soundtrack is incredible. It was one of the best moments for me. Listening back in my note writing process, mm, I yeah. put very, a lot of specific tracks aside just to revisit. I think it's dynamite, but this problem is on steroids for the people that don't like Nolan. If, it's, if it doesn't hit for you already. Yeah, I feel like if you don't like beware. Nolan already because of these elements of how loud his movies are and how, um, you know, uh, they don't let scenes breathe, this is going to be a terrible experience for you, honestly. Wow, and do you, do you know those people that straight up just, like, don't really like him? Uh, yeah, uh, I, I do, and um, I can un- also understand it. I personally like it, right. but uh, I can definitely understand it that um, hmm. it's it's the same thing that I say with Razzle Dazzle. It's uh, ultimately a distraction of performances, mm-hmm. I feel, mm-hmm. is what the critique is after. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, the problem here is that every... Every single scene, almost to the point of being ridiculous, cannot be left alone more than a two-minute stretch. Right. There is music playing over this constantly. It's a three-hour music video. Uh, and granted, I mean, that, that it's not licensed songs. It's this beautiful score that Gorson is 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 structurally aware of right. and is aware of whatever type of meta structure that Nolan is making in these editing processes. Boy, is it you're not left yeah. alone with these characters. <laughs> <laughs> so, I would say personally, I think the ends justify the means. Uh, the result is a snappier pace to a 3-hour mm. film. Uh, which is well needed <laughs> in in a movie about scientists talking in rooms. <laughs> so maybe that's that's the right call. But uh, it was just very noticeable, and I just feel like uh, critics of that loud style, even if you're not, I feel it's going to be noticed in this. One okay, then, if okay. that makes sense. Beyond that, I don't have much more I want to say. I think there are some catch surprises in this that need to be 
experience on their own, both for who shows up and the performances that are knocked out of the park in this. I will say, without a doubt, this is a career performance for Killian Murphy, like I said, and would be shocked if he does not get the Oscar for this. My final thoughts are, I would call this film great because of the gravitas it treats the subject matter with. As As it's said in the film, This is the culmination of three centuries worth of physics. It treats concepts like the revolution in physics, quantum mechanics, and the sheer impossibility of pulling off this project with wonder and amazement, while it equally reflects on how the history itself was warped around Oppenheimer's creation, yet leaves him in a limbo of renown and infamy. We're going to go ahead and give Oppenheimer an 84. Oh, no. no. <laughs> you thought it was going to be. I thought it was, yeah. yeah. Wow. I, I 84, think, though. Yeah. Uh, I don't think we've ever had a week this good. I think so. As I, far that's as what I was saying. Three 80s? The other two in the week. 70s? <laughs> yeah. Are you kidding me? It's a big boy week. Why not the 85 or above? I think runtime, and I think a little bit of, uh, of uh, the rule for me for 85 and above is I watch it twice. Um, and I just was simply not able to watch this twice. Um, I, in addition to concerns of, I think, this might lose a lot of people once that last hour comes around. Okay. It's just, it plays out like a wanted- biography to a laser point. Right, uh, right. So... Okay, no, no, I, I like that. It, you you would never say, just because it's three hours, I didn't get a chance to get around to watching it a second time. Uh, no, no. Like, I, if you really wanted to watch it a second time, but just, like, couldn't make it because it's three hours. And maybe I didn't want to, but <laughs> that's not saying that this is uh, anything bad. I mean, obviously, that 85 is a threshold for us, but, I mean, this is a phenomenal It's a more of, this can sit where it's, you watch it once, yeah. stays with you, it's good for a bit. You'll, you'll pick it up a little after. I mean, it is a monumental movie. Yeah. That's for sure. Absolutely. Wow, right. 84% for Oppenheim. Uh, this is fantastic. All right, so before we get to our last film here, folks, I just want to chime in once again here and remind everybody that uh, Vin and I are going off the value for value model. We are completely producer-supported. So basically what that means is uh, we're going to stay away from corporate advertising. We're not just going to shill products to you all. Uh, we're not going to deal with tier structures or, or paywalls. We're also not going to deal with subscriptions or anything like that. Basically, whatever value you're getting from us here at the Daily Ratings, uh, is that value to you? Is that value in your pocket? Then we ask you if you can send us value back in our pocket. So you go to the dailyratings.com. You can go to the donations tab. And then right there, you'll see our value for value button, which uh, is, is a payment of whatever amount of value you want. We have our set donations too, which are kind of fun. But also we have Venmo and Satoshis for anybody who's also into that. But it's like I said, it's the dailyratings.com. Head to the donations tab. Uh, we Again, we are completely producer supported here as we're rounding out 2023. We had some new producers on board for the year. We definitely had reoccurring producers. Uh, we appreciate you all so much. And we We hope that many of you will become producers in the future. So thank you all so much. Once again, it's dailyratings.com. Head to the donations tab. And okay, let's keep things going. Let's just get to it right away now. So sit down. Make sure you go to the bathroom. Um, Actually, that's a great way to kick it off. Did you go pee during this movie? No, I did not. No! I know. know. For people who know me, you'd be shocked. I mean, that's (laughs) that's the biggest news on the podcast. I I didn't have to pee. 
I was, and so much so, I didn't have to go so much that I wasn't even thinking through a half the film. Do I go now? Is something going to happen now? Can oh, I go? It's Killers of the Flower Moon. It's more, this is how we open this movie. <laughs> yeah. Did you go? Pee? Killers of the Flower Moon. Martin Scorsese. It's three hours and twenty six minutes long. It's rated R. We have a big cast. A different kind of movie um, for for Marty. I would say. Uh, let's get into it right away. Mm. We'll ping pong back and forth. Vin, how did you like Killers of the Flower Moon? Well, uh, I'm very happy to say that, uh, again, when, when I first came across this movie and, and trailers and whatnot, and uh, there was a, a gratitude that I get to review a movie from Scorsese, uh, but there was an immediate fear. <laughs> we shared a, it. We both there, talked about it on the podcast, yeah, too. Yeah, there was a panic uh, that, that I had and, and kind of saying, you know, Jesus Christ, I have to actually have to review this. And allow me to say, folks, I, you know, I talk a lot of shit on movies, uh, sometimes because I love a movie, sometimes because I love and expect more from the director. Uh, but let's get it straight. You know, my words are nothing compared to the art and effort put into any film, and that goes double for Marty. Luckily, here I have the easy job of saying I, I really did love this movie. I didn't. I don't feel like I need wow. to drag it through the mud like I would probably want to do and have to do for The Irishman uh, if that came out during the podcast or anything like right, that. Right, right. Um, so just know it's all love. Uh, you know, any, any any slight at this movie, the amount of consideration that is put into this film is tenfold of any movie that has come out this year. I, I, I agree with that. Yeah. Uh, and, and while, uh, With the exception of, a, say, Oppenheimer. No, uh, sure, sure, yeah. absolutely. That is the the big arms race here. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm curious to to hear you know which side uh, you fall on. Is it Oppenheimer or Killers? So, uh, you know, while I was concerned, I would have issues with this movie. Uh, I'm really happy to say that it really doesn't disappoint. Killer of the Flowers Moons, it, Killers of the Flower Moon is, I would say, one of the strongest of the year. It has an aspect that. It runs so long. Is it fair to even compare to other films? Yes. Uh, every film had this type of runway. Sure, there's plenty of dramatic arcs can you know be fleshed out and whatnot. But I do think it is one of the strongest of, of the year. That yeah, I, I would totally agree with that. It's it's going to be in the running for sure. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say – I don't think you have to put it in its own category for the time. Okay. We can talk about that right away as far as just the time and kind of get those <laughs> – Right. Okay. I was shocked. Uh-huh. When the movie ended, I was shocked with how okay I was with the time. Mm, yeah, I can't. I walked away from it, and I was just like, I mean, in three and a half hours, could you cut stuff? Mm. Sure, yeah. obviously. I wasn't angry at any scene being too long. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sitting there saying this needs to end. This needs to end. It right. was really a movie that takes you on a journey. Yeah, tells a story, and by the end of it, I was so okay. I was shocked with how okay it was with three hours. And tw- sure, three hours and twenty six. Yeah, uh, Andrea thought the exact same thing. We yep. both were just like. Totally fine with yeah, that. Yeah, when we were dreading it at first, I know you were. I mean, oh yeah, it's just like oh boy, four hours at the movie. Yeah, so I just I'll- remember my experience with with the Irishman that it just destroyed my Thanksgiving that year in 2019. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I still like the Irishman. I we'll go. I can't wait to review that on the podcast because right, right, we'll yeah. go head to head on that one. <laughs> um, but I'll just say that right off the bat that I was more than okay yeah. with the three hours and 26 six minutes. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you heard the news lately that there was a lot of theaters taking it upon themselves 
to insert an intermission when, oh, they feel, really? when they feel like it. Marty's not happy about it. The oh, team not, is not no. happy about it because the story is meant to be told how it's told. Sure. And breaking it up, uh, you know, for a full intermission type thing, it, mm. it's a weird thing for a theater to take it upon themselves to do that. Yeah, um, yeah. I didn't have that in mind, but... Really, folks, it's not that it's an unbelievably fast-paced movie, mm. but it's paced so well where you are along for the ride and, as far as I'm concerned, totally okay with it. Yeah, yeah. And different than, like, just a bunch of – or, like, binging four hours of a TV show. I think it's oh, different. Uh, it very much is deserved of being a movie. It is its own piece. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Where I think my only comparison would be, like, the Snyder Cut for Justice League or even that re-edit of A Hateful Eight for Tarantino – uh, there are – those feel like just kind of uh, TV or streamable type of content where mm-hmm. this was very clearly just a movie, uh, which is good and, yeah. and, and deserving of that. So, I'll say this. I like the long run time of The Irishman as well. <laughs> <laughs> the head-to-head. See, I'm the one that gets hurt though, because I have to shit on one of my favorite directors by doing the. So I, I never want to do the Irishman. Oh yeah, um, I think what impresses me most about, uh, most of all about this film, is its production. Uh, I'm a big fan of CBS Sunday Morning. They had some great coverage uh, on the authenticity of this film mm-hmm. and making it. Mainly steps that were taken to tell the story with respect to the Osage Nation. Uh, including extensive casting decisions and constant fact-checking of the true story. But not once does this film blare in your face its nonfiction roots. The power comes from a feeling of realism. Unlike pain, uh, unlike uh, pain hustlers, where it's just like true story, true story. Can you believe this happened? Mm-hmm. You know, this is just—it's kind of confident in its realism. Yeah. I think this pays off a lot with Lily Gladstone playing our female lead Molly, alongside with pretty much any of the language work done in the film. Uh, that is going to lead me to my biggest praise. I think one of the most notable aspects here is Robert De Niro learning the full Osage language, uh, and might be an all-time performance for him. Okay. I, Oh, wow, wow. What do you mean he learned the whole language? Uh, I mean, he's speaking that pretty fluently. He's, he sounds, he doesn't sound even like a, <laughs> he's, he's sounding Osage. I wanted to laugh. I wanted to laugh. As soon as he's pretty early in the movie, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, they did. They bring it out right away. Yep, yep. And when he's doing it, he's kind of like whispering it to somebody. I, I wanted to laugh, honestly. Right. I, it wasn't impressed. I wasn't impressed. Throughout the film, then, it's just like, he did learn, and he learned the dialect a little <laughs> right. bit. It was kind of impressive. Where, like, Leo is always whispering it. Like, he didn't yeah, have that down. I, I, De Niro is, is he's orating, you know, he's, 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 he's giving speeches. I, was not, I, think, I think that's worth some praise. Okay, all right, sure, yes, no, for sure, <laughs> it's worth some praise. There's this other scene, he's talking over somebody and kind of saying a prayer for somebody yeah, a little yeah, bit, yeah, again, yeah. Almost, just kind of wanted to laugh, was smiling. <laughs> really? Yeah, I wasn't saying they okay. being like, wow, he's really, I'm impressed by this. Fair enough, fair um, enough. I'm not, I liked his performance. Okay. Uh, I wasn't blown away by his performance. Really? Yeah, I really and I, I oh, yeah, wow. I really feel that way. Okay, okay. I think that's I think that's surprising just because I feel like his menacingness in this film was so realistic. Um so, did, did you like him as a villain, essentially? He yes. Is, he is the antagonist. Yes, okay. Here. I liked him as a villain. L- let me just say this. Sure. And I can kind of almost say the same thing for Leo as well. Mm. Very much how we were talking about being on the rails or having to be on rails. His runway to act 
was very much on rails. And mm. I don't say that in a bad way. Mm-hmm. I'm saying he's just playing a very certain character. Yep. And he's not given the chance to have range. Yeah. Because that's not his job. Sure. His job is to be this one guy in this one way. Mm-hmm. And he was very much this one guy in the very same one way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's a little bit one note, but not his fault. There's rails on the character. Mm. He stayed within the rails, but he did a very good job at being the character. Sure. Sure. So I liked him on screen. I enjoyed seeing him. I liked him with Leo or with anybody. Mm. Mm-hmm. It was very difficult to me. I wasn't having that damn. I was, I was having that like, look at De Niro go right now. Look, he's right. acting his ass off. Yeah. Not once did I really, really? feel that. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. But interesting. I think he's strapped and Leo was strapped with just having to be the characters that they needed to be. Yeah. I think what hits it for me with De Niro and where I, I, I don't know if I said like, damn, this is this is really, really great De Niro. Right. Um, I do think it is, it conjures similar aspects of what I love in his top roles. Max Cady in Cape Fear, um, sure. uh, Conway in Goodfellas. It's the subtle manipulation that we're never really recognizing and saying, oh, that's the bad guy. It's just that in the way he talks, he's constantly working an angle. And I feel like yeah. this character of Hale uh, was able to to encapture those good elements in those uh, you know top-tier De Niro okay, performances. Okay, sure, all right. Um, and, and at least in... in in just the surface level, I enjoyed him being the antagonist. I enjoyed him being the villain okay. of it. Yeah. You know, I, I like De Niro as a villain. <laughs> I like villains, I know, period. So. I also think just because of this language work, despite – I think it's a good perspective that you, you brought up that it was maybe a little cartoonish. Would, was that safe to say? Uh, or, or what? how would you like to put this <laughs> making you laugh aspect? Because it's just De Niro – because De Niro has almost become a meme of himself. Okay. For the past 20 years, yep. he's had his – other revenues of money, you know what I mean? And almost <laughs> taking up roles so he could pay for his restaurants and this and that. Like, we haven't, like, De Niro was one of, oftentimes considered the best actor sure. for like decades. Yeah, yeah. Like over two decades. Yeah. And I didn't grow up with that De Niro. Mm. I grew up with De Niro with, like I said, was almost a meme of himself. Mm. And you could almost starting with, like, meet, meet the, the parents. parents. And, analyze this and so now you see this it's it's a big time movie because it's not just a massive film and the story and you know it's leo and him together finally on film mm. together mm-hmm. he wasn't i don't know i just him breaking out in osage language <laughs> it, it made you laugh it made me laugh because i wasn't <laughs> seeing the character do it i was seeing robert de niro do it fair enough you know what enough. i mean and again and, and i don't want to it's going to sound like I'm shitting. I'm going to be shitting on this movie a little bit. I might be a little bit in ways, but in no way am I saying the performances are bad or they could have really done much better. Right, that's exactly how I opened it up. I mean, yeah. it, it comes from love. It comes from uh, that the, the potential of this film yes. is massive, maybe even greater than itself. And it's just, yes. And I'll just, not to keep on repeating myself, because I can say this across the board with a lot of things with this film, mm-hmm. but these two main actors in general... The character is on rails, so that ne- therefore they had to be. Yeah. Take The Revenant, which mm-hmm. is one of my favorite movies. Sure. A lot of people say Leo got the Oscar for that performance when he should have got it for Wolf of Wall Street. Because mm. The Revenant, he's not doing too much because oftentimes his throat is like slit and he can't even talk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? So that character is hindered by the ability where the character is just hindered. Mm, yeah, yeah. And he can, and Leo can only be so Leo in it. Sure. I feel the same way in this film. Interesting. About both these characters. Interesting. I guess my last note with De Niro before moving on is do you think maybe even in that same thing of, uh, oh, we're just going to give it to Leo because he's earned it. Do you think this is a late era Oscar win for best supporting in, in De Niro's favor? Um, yes. No way. Okay. Uh, for multiple reasons. From the language angle to... I'd say three reasons. Yeah? Yeah. One, because it's Robert De Niro. Sure. 
two because of the length of time on screen. Mm. He is such a supporting cast, and oftentimes yeah. when it comes to Oscars, the people who have a serious big supporting cast role, mm-hmm. uh, you're already thrown into the into the probable yeah uh, bin. You yeah. know what I mean? Uh, there's oftentimes he's in it so much you could say it's shared big time between him and Leo. Absolutely. So that's two. Three, it's because, like I said, his performance is quite good at the character mm-hmm. he's playing. Um, and with the language, with the with just the story it is and the heaviness of it, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. he's op- automatically a contender and I would say probably in top spot. I think that's a great point with the time on screen. This isn't like a Silence of the Lambs, you know, uh, Hopkins getting it for like you know, a couple minutes. Correct. You know what I mean? Uh, we talked about it once before, but in his, um, oh man, in the uh, Kevin Costner, uh, Sean Connery film. Oh, he uh, plays, he, uh, Untouchables. Untouchables. He's in it like barely. He's in like five scenes, four scenes. Oh, yeah, scenes. yeah. De Niro playing Capone, yeah. But did he, he, I think he was nominated for I that. I think he was, uh, going back to it. It is good, but right, it's that's one of those classic it, cases. And in one of those few cases where you only have four seasons yeah. and people are oh, talking about you and it's you're just, getting Oscar buzz. Yeah. With this, he's naturally going to get Oscar buzz yeah. because, man, when you're in it that long, you look at Kihei Kwan mm. in... Um, Everything Everywhere sure. all at once. Mm-hmm. He won the Oscar and he deserves it all the way because there's at mm. times he's almost the, the main lead. Yeah, he's absolutely. almost the lead. Absolutely. Uh, that's a big factor. Yeah, that, that's a great point. Great point. Uh, but that's where I was coming into, at least with my praise for De Niro. Um, I, I, I think that's great, though. <laughs> that's, that it got, a, it got a laugh out of you uh, because <laughs> I, can cer- I, feel like I can certainly see it. I, I, I know the cartoonish aspect of yeah, it. it. Yeah. Listen, this is going to be a long review, clearly. We're having a hit summary. I know. I know. But to continue on, Denier, just a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just because I'll finish just my last thing. Is, right. It's. He was known for being the biggest character actor. Mm. You go back to when he did, um, when he plays a psychopath oh, uh, in uh, Cape Fear. Uh, Cape Fear, yeah. The amount of research he did into mm. the dialect and everything like that. Yes. The research he did for so many of his films back then. He was relentless mm. at doing prep for the film. Mm-hmm. The moment he broke out in that language, the reason why it's because for 20 years I have seen De Niro just rolling through a film. <laughs> Right. And just being like, I'm De Niro, I know what I'm doing here. Right. You heard about like him, Leo was being really persistent with working with each line. Oh, yeah. And they like, they both, him and Marty, De Niro yeah. and Marty were getting pissed at Leo because <laughs> Leo was just taking it too far, wanted yep. to change the script, wanted to change it. Yep. And De Niro was getting pissed and rolling his eyes constantly. <laughs> um, you know, not that he was phoning it in, but I just can't help that he gives off that vibe to me sometimes. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely get what you mean. I, I think just where the character, I was in love with it, and I, I really, I mean it, I think it was my favorite part of the movie. Mm-hmm. The production is close, uh, but that's just a, a big thing. But as far as like an individual role, it's just that the manipulation that happens with mm-hmm. him as the antagonist, it's 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 Jimmy Conway in the last half of Goodfellas. It is Max Cady and how menacing he is without even touching anyone. And I feel like in this like mm. schemy turn of the century, captain of industry, Mason, you know, businessman that his character is Hales. It just it was it was a villain in yet a new way that still had those aspects of what okay. I love about his villains, you know. And I love that. I love yeah. that. Yeah. But yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the tangents of tangents. Uh, where where do we go from here? Uh, this this authenticity once again, I think it pays off in setting the film in this kind of untouched uh, 1920s Oklahoma. This uh, has a, a unique feel to its setting, but for how much we get to understand about the Osage Nation and the focus uh, being on the town, uh, I would say 
the main mover of the story is on romance between Ernest and Molly. Uh, Leo plays Ernest here, and over a huge runtime, we see him dip in and out of a facade within this town. To Molly, he is a loving husband. To his Uncle Hale, he is a loyal dog. And alone, he is entirely something else and a little bit, you know, unleashed in that regard. Mm -hmm. Their romance is strained from the very beginning with twisted motivations of inheriting the Osage land. But when a string of countless murders begin, it begs the question of everyone's true intentions. And this type of drama, this type of... Not conspiracy, but um, kind of looking over your shoulder is the main through line of the plot to Killers of the Flower Moon. I think my note here is this is where the runtime is justified. This is where uh, I was fully comfortable with it being three hours, 26 uh, you know, uh, my fear was that I thought this was going to be like, you know, Irishman in 2019, where the runtime kind of cripples some of the punch of the film. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, the good news is that it, it feels justified for me. Uh, we unpack the drama of so many interlocking relationships around town, within the tribe, and that runtime enriches the experience, like maybe a show. But again, this feels distinctly like a movie and deserve it of just being a movie rather than a broke up episodic thing just mm-hmm. being played back to back or binge style. Or yeah, something like absolutely. That. The heart and the emotion that's felt in the film and what's conveyed to the audience yeah. is so deep. You need the time to sink into the environment, yeah. which, which Marty and they just set up so, so mm-hmm. well. Yeah. Uh, it really is just a beautiful single piece to tell this entire story. Yeah. To rush, sure, anyone could come in and probably make a two-hour and 15-minute movie. Mm-hmm. It would be rushed, and that depth wouldn't be felt at all. Yeah. We yeah. really feel like we have been told this story mm-hmm. in a true, earnest, proper way. Yeah. And like you said, it's justified. Yeah. I'm glad that we both felt that coming away from it. It's even in the setting. You know, this is such a blend. It's 1920s, but it also feels distinctly like late West a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Um, the development is all over. They have a, a you know shit ton of money because of the oil mm-hmm. connected to land, but at the same time as well, it is still uh, impoverished and lawless in ways yep. like a West would feel, or a dying West would feel. Uh, and I just feel like our, our takeaway from the setting couldn't be done with a lesser runtime. You know, the slow decline of the tribe requires to unfold uh, gradually, gradually, and um, each killing builds a gravity that lingers the whole movie. It really doesn't go away. And I think that's driven home, if you do watch this, uh, folks, uh, it's important you see the beginning because I feel like it sets the tone uh, as uh, some narration from mm. Molly uh, goes through and kind of... Not gives away the film, but lets you know that there's a building list of murders that we need to not forget about right. um, because they are very much intended to be forgotten about. Mm-hmm. So I would say it's heartwarming to find out that this soundtrack was done by the great Robbie Robertson, who passed away this year. Uh, a longtime friend of Marty going back to 1978's classic, The Last Waltz. Uh, and I would say the music choice is third in line for what I loved about this film. You know, Marty somehow makes blues span across a whole spectrum of moods to fit exactly how he needs them. 
Uh, again, this 1920s, so like folk and marching songs are used in more upbeat parts to give energy when needed. I mean, I feel like Marty has accomplished something with pairing, and Robinson, with pairing his music like he would in a Goodfellas, mm-hmm. like he would in a Wolf of Wall Street, but in this older time period, which is not a factor that I felt with like Gangs of New York or other type of period pieces that Marty has done. And I just, just hats off to it. I thought this was a phenomenal soundtrack. Okay. Yeah. What do you think about I mean, you're the blues man. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think about it? Um, it was one of the biggest disappointments I Whoa! felt was the film. Whoa! In the film. Um, and it could have been partially I was looking forward to it too much. Oh, okay. Um, I knew this was Robbie Robertson. I knew okay. this was the last film he did. Uh-huh. Uh, for those of you who don't know, just like Robbie Robertson and the band, he is such an integral part to Martin Scorsese for all of his films going back to the the mid 70s mm-hmm. uh, even if he's not credited in the music department or if he's not credited in as the main music done by or yeah, something yeah. like that mm-hmm. oftentimes he was still always with marty marty would always run things by him yep and officially he was on around 10 or a dozen films mm. officially of where he gets the credit for it kind of mm. Not only is it special because Robbie died this year. Yes, he did work on the movie entirely. Like it was all him. Oh, good. Okay. But also, it's very. Uh, it was very touching and meaningful for Robertson to be a part of this and to do this film, mm. which I know that Marty was aware of. But he grew up on a reservation. His mom mm. was, I think, until like nine or something like that. Robbie's mom was from a Canadian uh, Native American tribe, yeah, I believe. Yeah, because all the band is Canadian, right? Or, or yes, most of them. Yeah. Yes, that's right. So, And I forget what um, I forget what tribe it was with, but uh, very in tune later in like the aughts, in the 2000 aughts kind mm-hmm. of, he formed another band and they did some like tribal music. Oh, wow. Tribal-based stuff. Okay. So very meaningful to Robbie. Yeah. I was expecting more. I was expecting to be more present. Oftentimes, it's just droning in the background. It, mm. and I don't mean droning as a really bad thing, but... It's quiet, it's slow, mm. and because it's a long film, I was naturally expecting it to, mm, the music to help it move in a certain way. You mm. felt that? I mean, you just said that you had <laughs> yeah, kind of felt did. that. It, I wasn't crazy impressed really? with it. And honestly, one of the main things that I would say about Kill the Irishman mm-hmm. is the same thing. Robbie did that music as well. Really? And I felt that soundtrack to be lackluster. Yeah. And again, kind of background music. Mm. And there, oftentimes, it's not, you know, it's a pretty quiet movie. It's mm-hmm. Killers of the Flower Moon. Mm-hmm. I was expecting a little bit more punch and something that I could, something I could feel. Something mm. when I'm thinking about a scene or thinking back to this movie, I, I, I have that in the back of my head. That's sure. setting up, it helps set a mood a little bit. When you think of Nolan or watching Dunkirk or something like that, mm-hmm. even just the ticking of that watch yeah, is uh, the, very resonant with the film. I can You can feel it almost. Absolutely. It has a presence. Big time. Yeah. And with this film, I wasn't getting that. I mean, believe me, I was listening and when, <laughs> it, when something, you know, a constant little drum in the back or yeah, something yeah. like that, you know, it was there. It was present. Mm-hmm. You could tell that there was thought to it. I was expecting a more variety mm-hmm. of genre played. And louder and quicker when I felt like it could have helped. Well, I think with the lack of variety was what I was impressed with. It he uses blues in any type of scene, and uh, you know, uh, I was expecting more Native American stuff. Really? Okay. Yeah, okay. Definitely. Interesting. And not that drums aren't used; they are yes, used, yeah, but yeah, yeah. still, I was expecting more. I'm fine with the blues stuff. 
Or they I'm also have like going up the country, like folk, folk, right. uh, you know, early folk stuff like that. Like I knew some of the tracks yeah, that yeah. he plucked from. And I thought I it was, was pretty good ex- deep cuts. And I was expecting more. I didn't think they wow, were deep cuts. Wow. I'm more of a blues but, guy. Well, you are the blues aficionado. So I'm here, just yeah. like, all right, he's pulling that. All right, okay, you know. <laughs> he's like, I listened to that three I, years ago. So uh, <laughs> very touching for everything around Robertson, what the band means yeah, to yeah. you and I personally. Yes, absolutely. But um, it's funny you say it's on third of best for you. I, I would say third. Uh, taking away really from it wow. yeah wow wow i guess if anything again i want to stay away from the arms race of this versus our oppenheimer i guess in where with where with nolan it was such a loud movie <laughs> <laughs> and again even to the critics of nolan like he played right into it like yeah. of what people hate about his movies of the of the haters out there i just felt like this this in combination with a fresh style story and um you know marty was just able to do something new and i feel like he was able to do something new with his soundtrack rather than it just being like oh it's like goodfellas or it's like oh it's like any of the trends that marty set in his career yes um, i think you'd be shocked if you go back and watch um kill the irishman again or irishman, or irishman right kill the irishman different movie <laughs> Um, if you go back and watch The Irishman, yeah. um, you're going to find a lot of similarities. Really? I remember you complaining about The Irishman. Money down, I would have thought you had the same feeling about the music on this one for interesting. me. Interesting, interesting. Maybe, maybe that's, that is worth the, the rewatch. I then. was watching and walking away from it, too. I was... I. It needed a little Nolan-y to it. Mm. Not crazy loud. I didn't need crazy loud. No, 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 no. But pacing-wise, I was expecting more to fill kind of the gaps in Mm. or to punch. Yeah. I'll make one other reference. and Maybe people will get this. Maybe not. Mm -hmm. But the Peaky Blinders Mm. on Netflix. Okay. A lot of talking scenes, a lot of dialogue, and then all of a sudden it's quickly broken up by like a Jack White or garage type band or something mm. like that. That's a little bit too much. Yeah. That's like trying too hard. Yeah, yeah, I don't need that. I didn't need it to be crazy loud or anything like that. Mm. And it also pulls for some of the music, kind of that 1920s era as well. Yes, yes. I just needed something more, invoke a little bit more feeling, help the mm. scene along. It's not just about loudness or anything like that. Right, right. It's about true depth and care in the musical choices themselves. I want it more, and that's why I say I want it more from the Native American sure, stuff. Sure, sure. I'm expecting a little bit more heart in that. I, you know, I think that's a very valid point because it, it, in every other ounce of the film, there is this hardcore consideration of the Osage, yeah. uh, this uh, respect given to to their thing, mm-hmm. to their to their culture, and, and maybe there is, that is a lacking element. Uh, even even take the trailer. Yeah. Where, where oh right, right. They played a, a tribe called Red. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And not that I needed a tribe called Red no. in, in something like this film. Yeah. But I was like, that right away, I was like, oh, okay, all right, yeah. Robbie's going to go ham, like, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah. But uh, that's that. Yeah. Well, I, then uh, enough with my top three. Let me, let me get to where I, I do have some gripes. Okay. And I feel like, sadly, the lacking element for me is Leo. Uh, I feel with him being the center of the story, it affects my feelings on the final act of the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a little bit of how that final act is structured with so much runtime. You know, I, I think his performance-wise, it's 95% great. We still get the, the yelly Leo, which... Uh, it's tame. As far as Leo freakouts. <laughs> right. Thinking about you the whole time of that scene. That's so funny. <laughs> I, just, I don't even know if we've even fleshed that out on the podcast, but I, I got some beef with with Leo's uh, ace in the hole that he always pulls out, which is him cracking his voice, screaming. Uh, I do not think it's acting. I think anyone can do it. <laughs> it's so funny that I, that's a classic. Yeah, we're worried each other's heads. Yeah, but uh, you know his acting ninety five percent good here. I think the character is robbed of a meaningful conclusion. And uh, it really just depends on how you see 
who is the lead here? Um, it really depends on how you see what is the purpose of the story. Mm-hmm. I think um, maybe not the correct answer, but I think the takeaway answer is that it is about the Osage. It is about the nation uh, of these people and what is what has been done to them. But Leo is so pronounced as an actor and as a character that the conclusion is uh, it's just a bit unsatisfying. Mm-hmm. I just feel like it, it kind of kind of slips at the end. Um, uh, one piece of this is the dramatic hit, the punch of the story, happens much earlier than the actual close of the film. So much so that I feel like the last hour of the plot. It, it, I don't want to say flounders, but the writing is on the wall for all of our characters in the last hour. Yeah. We know what's basically, basically when Jesse Plemons gets introduced. Mm-hmm. I, I feel structuring in, in that way, again, I wasn't upset with the time. In a lesser film, I think I would definitely critique that of just saying that's wasted time and, and make the punch hit harder. For me, it, it really only affected Leo's character. At no point did I expect a bow tie ending and nor did I want that. But mm-hmm. the very nature of the story is is so messy and so intentionally a little unsatisfying in its in its truth that I feel like Man, uh, I, I wanted just a little bit something more concrete around uh, Ernest's relationship with Molly, yeah. especially with the movie. Again, you you can see this movie in a lot of different ways. The mover, the mover of the plot is the romance and, and is Leo's ambitions. So to feel that structure over three and a half hours uh, and feel that romance with Molly, uh, I was just looking for more closure with Leo's character. I, you feel me there? I agree, and it could have been a five-minute scene, not even. Uh, yeah. It could have been a little bit something. And at the same time— It really comes down to that last interaction, yeah, too. But at the same time, it was so purposeful. Yeah. Because it wasn't—everything you said that the movie is about is about. Mm. However— Really, when it comes down to it, it is about the Osage people at this very specific time. Yeah. And it's about telling this story of this period. Yeah. And we just used our host to tell that story was Leo. Mm, you know mm-hmm, what I mean? Mm-hmm. And kind of just a swiping him aside. Mm-hmm. And for the finishing of the story, uh, which I do love, you know, the last five minutes, I, I really like the way mm, that they, oh, they, sure, they really bring it to a close. Absolutely. Especially that, that kind of break in reality yeah. that comes with it. Yeah. So it felt very intentional, but dissatisfying. Mm-hmm. But I walked away saying, like, wow, that was such an incredible telling yeah. of a true event that actually happened in history. But Absolutely. it's tough to walk away and say, unbelievable Leo performance. Because it's not the purpose. It's not the purpose, yeah. even though that's what it's about mostly. And even though it's, it's top-billed characters right. and whatnot, yeah. there, there's a conflict there, I feel. But, um, but yeah, that, that's really my main gripe with it. And, and, and again – how that affects structure, how that affects the last hour specifically, specifically how it affects uh, the role of Ernest. Uh, not really connected to the performances, yeah. though. It, it, uh, no, for sure. It's, mm-hmm. And it's hard. I was trying not to go back and be like, oh, what would I do different? Because it's so easy to, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, I don't even know what's back, right. backseat direct. Yeah, yeah, armchair back, director. Right, armchair yeah. direct. But it, it's, <clears throat> you know, it probably could have done it a little bit different, especially in that last hour because... That's almost should be Leo at the highlight, the unraveling of Leo mm. and trying to. That's ma- when we need the scream. Trying to maintain <laughs> and control. It it's you know falls flat a little bit. I would say. Yeah. You know, I don't want to keep on making excuses and be like, well, maybe, that, but it it did. That's yeah. yeah. What's felt. And, and and that that was that was kind of my really only like uh, as far as uh, major critique. I feel like that's where I kind of landed with it. And again, uh, a, a little bit of a of a bias, a little bit of a hatchet I need to bury with Leo. <laughs> so just just to be honest, like I said, folks, 
this is a very strong entry for this year and uh, a year that already has some heavy hitters. Um, I'm actually very excited come Tom Daly's time. Mm. Very excited just to kind of look back on this year because even if something's not super strong, I feel like there's been a lot of uh, iconic movies, uh, a lot of movies that just kind of bring it home for their creators and killers of flower moon kind of hits on so many levels um trust me this is not blind praise either for a veteran director making a big movie um you know i fully went in expecting to have a lot of problems with this connected to the runtime and was really left wanting to see more the big question here is uh you know how much is it really worth your time with that runtime i think for me it was very much worth it i'm honestly excited to hear uh from just just different perspectives on this because um while i feel like we've done a good job tom as as giving a balanced opinion it's uh i don't know i feel like there is some blind praise around this movie not saying that it needs hate in any way but Uh i feel like people are just kind of plugging in saying oh it's marty it's it's good you know yeah the only Uh, real the only real um hate it's getting is the runtime yeah you know yeah uh, but I, I feel like what, what Marty has been able to do here with the Osage Nation, with this very unique setting of 1920s, not really industrial, but still West, and not only that, of course, a true story that doesn't throw it in your face and, and deserves to be told, I feel like what Marty has done, this high praise, comes close to a Goodfellas in the sense that Marty was able to put a spotlight on the mafia culture of America and Italian-Americans. Mm. And in a similar way, he's been able to spotlight something that probably a vast majority of people watching this film do not have experience with, do not have a background with, and is able to do justice by it to uh, place us front and center to what what we need to know about this time, this period, and, um, uh, and, and these people as well. Uh, with that said... We're going to go ahead and give Killers of the Flower Moon an 85. It makes Whoa! it. It makes it. Whoa! Yeah, it makes it. Big boy alert, Big boy. <laughs> 85%. Wow, I man. think. I think... Uh, you didn't see it twice, did you? No. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'm already breaking my rule right. with that. 85%. Well, since it's two movies in one, I'll, I'll count it as twice. Wow. I'll count it as twice. <laughs> Wow, okay. (laughs) Yeah, I I think, um, again, where I stuck with it is that, do I even have a uh, a passing interest in the Osage Nation or anything like that? No, but this movie made me care in the way that I think Mm. a Goodfellas makes you care about... Italian American mafia type of experience. It's 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 a spotlight and doing it justice to the highest degree. And all right, folks, that wraps up some of the top five films of the year. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. We hope you like taking a look at these films again. And for all you new listeners, hope you like hearing it for the first time. I just want to say Vince and I are wishing everybody a great holiday week here. We hope you had a good Christmas. We hope you, everybody has a good New Year coming up here again. We are coming back next week with seven newly released films. It's going to wrap up all the films for 2023. And then two weeks from now is the big, the one and only, the most important award show there is. Of course, it's the Tom Daly's. So we hope you all stick around for next week. 
week and of course uh, the big award show as well just one more reminder folks again we're completely producer supported so if you feel like being a producer if you feel like you got value from all this and you want to donate just head to the donations tab at dailyratings.com don't be afraid to send us that donation note as well whether it be through the paypal notes or email us at tom.vin at the dailyratings.com so folks thank you so much happy holidays we will see you next week on the daily ratings podcast